let's pray before we get in because I think today's message, uh, I pray that today's message would be a deep encouragement to those of us that know the Lord and uh, an, an exhortation to those that may not. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these next few moments as we engage over your word, that you would reveal in our hearts the depth of the truth that it is, that you, Jesus, are the true myth, the myth that has come true, and it reads uh, even the Christmas story almost like an unbelievable uh, fairy tale, but in reality, we know it is real and it is true. Would you help us, would you help me to uh, speak your truth with clarity and power in the Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You know, when I read the Christmas story, and maybe when you read the Christmas story, um, it's easy to read it and subtly, if not blatantly, kind of dismiss or second-guess the story almost as if it's a myth. That was the testimony of one of the greatest thinkers and spokespersons for Christianity of the 20th century. I speak of none other than C.S. Lewis, an atheist who in turn became a Christian. Our world would be poorer without two other worlds. Those other worlds are Narnia and Middle Earth. And yet if two young professors had not met at an otherwise ordinary Oxford faculty meeting in 1926, those two wondrous lands would still be unknown to us. 87 years ago, almost to the date, J.R.R. Tolkien convinced C.S. Lewis that Christ is the true myth. As they walked Addison's Walk along the River Cherwell in Oxford, England, Tolkien and Lewis, side by side, were good friends. Both would become world-renowned writers of mythical masterpieces. Tolkien writing The Lord of the Rings, and Lewis writing, among many other things, The Chronicles of Narnia. Both men could spin a story, and Lewis therefore loved Greek mythology from his childhood. It was his love for Greek mythology that gave J.R.R. Tolkien a chance to speak into Lewis's heart because at this point he was still a non-believing atheist. What Tolkien helped Lewis understand is that he had no problem seeing the many virtues of myth when he saw it in other religions and other Greek mythological stories. But when it came to Christianity, 
He was a rigid skeptic. Tolkien said that Lewis should think of the resurrection as the true myth. The resurrection is a mythical event as well as Christ coming in the form of a baby. In that it is cosmic in its scope. That it explains the basic questions of life. And in doing so, using a fantastical twist in the story. A human being coming back to life. Now Tolkien said, you simply must see that this myth has the added weight of having actually happened. Within days of this conversation, Lewis became a Christian. An experience Lewis likened to slipping into a pair of new shoes that somehow feel as if they've been comfortably worn for years. The first thing about our text today is that it actually happened. On a real day in history, with real people in history. It is not a myth, as our minds and our skeptical sin nature might sometimes tell us. Luke 2, 1 and 2 begins to tell the true story. It says, Caesar Augustus, and it's saying, was the, who was the Roman Empire, and Quirinius was the, the governor of Syria, real people, real places. So, it had been prophesied in the Old Testament from Isaiah and many other places hundreds of years before that the Messiah would be born in the line of David in the town of David. It's interesting how God orchestrated even the details because they, the census was sent out and Joseph and Mary had to go back from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that the prophecy could be just as it was said in Scripture. So they go back, and that is where we know the baby that was to be the Savior was born. We live in a modern secular culture, and the leading lights of modern literature tell us life is meaningless. When you die, it's over. Tolkien says, yet with all the media and secular thought, somehow we still crave a certain type of story. Underneath what we watch, what we read, what we most enjoy, there is a particular type of storyline that rises out of all of them. These stories depict always a supernatural world. They depict being, being able to cheat death, somehow to escape it, aging and time. These stories show us a love that overcomes death. Now, right now, I'm not just talking about the gospel. I'm talking about the stories that somehow stir our hearts and bring us in, and we pay money to see them. 
We love stories that show us good triumphing over evil. Where justice is held high and evil is held accountable. We love stories about victory smashing the jaws of defeat. We love here, here, uh, <laughs> that word gets me every time. Heroism that brings life out of death. One author says it this way. We love stories that contain at least these three elements. We love stories that have in them a battle that there is to fight, an adventure that there is to live, and a beauty to rescue. These things are at the core of our desires. Let's look for a moment at the battle. It's in our text. Christ came into the world to fight the battle to redeem a people for himself. Why do I say it's a battle? Because a baby is born to a virgin in Bethlehem, and he has been given his marching orders from the Father. At the root and at the center of biblical Christianity is none other than a battle. A battle fought from God to redeem a people for himself. And so, in Genesis we read, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis, and especially chapter 3, we read that man fell from a state of perfection into a sinful state, and that God is holy, meaning set apart, perfect, no blemishes. God is holy, and therefore, sinful man cannot be in the presence of a holy God without some justice that has to happen. In this battle, there is a ruthless, evil enemy in the story of the Bible. The Bible often refers to him as Satan. This enemy deceives Adam and Eve, appealing to their pride to be like God. And the enemy questions the same thing he makes us question, the goodness of God. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to have the joy or the fruit. He's, he's kept this one thing from you. And he makes them question God's very goodness, which is the irony is he is the only being in the universe who is truly good. Fellowship with God is now broken. Paradise is lost. Peace is replaced with fear and anxiety. We lit the candle. The Joneses lit the candle of peace today. Peace is replaced with fear and anxiety. Security and worth are replaced with insecurity and shame. Love and intimacy, which we so long for, especially during this Christmas season, is replaced with broken relationships, mistrust, and loneliness. Now, what will happen is man's pride will grasp for power, for fame, for wealth, to prop up a broken identity 
and core desires for happiness are lost. Peace is lost. God's battle plan would include Christmas. Christmas is more than just shopping and presents and a baby in a manger. This is his strategy. This is his plan to redeem a people for himself. And, and Christ coming in the form of a baby and being laid in a manger is just the beginning of this battle. The battle would lead ultimately to his death on a cross and gloriously his resurrection three days later where not only he conquers death, he doesn't just conquer death, but in his resurrection, his people will also conquer death and live eternally. That's what makes Christmas so incredible. Do you know wherever you sit, whether you're 22, 45, 78, 91, Henry. You will conquer death. The Bible is clear. Christmas is what that, that's why Christmas is so special. The adventure, I said there's the battle. The adventure and a beauty to rescue. Let's talk for a minute about the adventure. It's here in our text. If you look at 2 7, verse, I mean, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, <clears throat> He, the Savior of the world, comes from common means. He's laid in a manger on hay. In our best stories, the stories that we relate to, the main character usually in those stories is a lot like us. Not many of us are noble. Not many of us are kings. Yet, Jesus comes in humility, though he is the king of kings. Isn't it interesting how he enters our world? And then you have this element of the supernatural because you have the shepherds and the angels come to the shepherds and the supernatural is seen here. Our, our intrigue with the supernatural is real, whether it's inside of Christianity or outside of Christianity. We're all intrigued by anything that would be supernatural. And here we have it. With the angels, there's this multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Look at uh, Luke 2, 10 through 13 in your Bibles with me there. <clears throat> Luke 2, 10 through 13. It says, and the angel said to them, he's talking to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Could you imagine? I bring you the greatest news man could ever hear. And then he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom it is, he is pleased. Peggy was telling me that when she taught three-year-olds, she would teach this verse around Christmas. 
and she would get the three-year-olds in front of her, and she would make them put their hands over their eyes and close their eyes really tight so that their pupils shrunk and it got dark. And then when she got to the part where the, the heavenly host of angels, she would make them open their eyes, and it would be a bright light, and so give them a sense of that would be what it would be like on a dark night, and then, whoosh, you know, just this angels everywhere. Let's not skip over that, the heavenly hosts praising God. Who are these beings, and what are they saying? While the angel was speaking to the shepherds, something more amazing took place. There appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. How many of the millions of holy angels appeared? A myriad in the Greek is 10,000. And it says in our text, in, in some versions of it, myriads of myriads, so ten thousands and ten thousands. Could you imagine what that would have been like to be a shepherd out there in the dark of night, and then all of a sudden, all of that appears? It says that they feared, probably feared for their life, just the astonishment of seeing that. And they, what are they saying? What? What do these, when these heavenly hosts appear, what do they say? They say, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, what does glory to God in the highest, what does that mean? Glory to God in the highest. The angels proclaim the news about Jesus. The eternal the omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, Son of God, has just taken on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And sometimes when I think about this, what I like to think about, because it helps me, is God himself, if you just try to wrap your head around this, comes down and he places himself Inside an infant human body, cannot feed himself, cannot change his own diaper. The limit is unbelievable. It would be as if you turned into a clam with all that that would mean. Just some little finite being from human to that. God has come down and become man. And so when they say glory to God in the highest, they're saying, like in Philippians 2, 7, the fullness of time has come and God has done what he has promised. He has sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law and peace. He will bring peace. So glory to God in the highest. So we've talked about the battle. We've talked about the adventure. Let's talk a moment about rescue. And when we look at this idea of rescue, I want you to look at 2.14, where the heavenly hosts say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Why does he not say peace to all men? Right there it says, peace to whom he is pleased. 
You've got to ask yourself, if you're a thinking person, why doesn't it say peace to everybody, to every man? But it says peace to whom he is pleased. Well, maybe it's this. Here's one possible answer. He's pleased with you because you're better than most of the other people in this room. Maybe that's one, that's one answer. That's one possible answer, you know. He's pleased with me because I'm the pastor, you know. I'm super spiritual. Thank you for that. <laughs> or, you know, maybe you kind of feel like you're, you wouldn't say it, but morally you're better than most, you know. Do you think that's why he has favor with people? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 answers my question. This is what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And here it is. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. So put, put to bed all the morality things. It's not a result of your works. So that no one may boast. So God has favor and he brings peace. And the peace that it's talking about in this verse is salvation. Peace between me and God. Because that peace was broken all the way back in Genesis 3. And so when God tells us about Christmas, he's saying, I'm going to bring peace to those whom I have found my favor. This means a few things, but one thing it most assuredly means is that Jesus came into the world to accomplish peace between God and man, but not all men, not all men. The Bible clearly teaches, though, and this is the other side of the coin. I want you to hear the other side of the coin. Romans 10, 13. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will receive eternal life. Whosoever. Not many of us are noble. Not many of us are kings. But you know, it seems to me that God comes and he comes in the form of a man in a manger because he wants to connect with just the common man. Who will ever, who would ever call on his name shall receive eternal life. I believe the peace that it's talking about here spills over to peace even within ourselves. I think we live in a community, we live in a world that is full of anxiety and depression. And I believe that much of that is starting because in our hearts we know there's not peace here. Because if there were peace here, how much easier would it be to have peace in here? And then, quite frankly, if I've got peace with him and peace inside myself, it only stands to reason that peace would spill over to you. And so, I believe this peace does do that. In other words, Jesus in Christmas is rescuing his beautiful bride, the church. 
So when we think about these great movies and there's always the hero, actually we just watched Shrek again. I thought it was hilarious. He comes in and rescues Fiona or whatever her name is. And, and Lily, you know, you know she, she's also an ogre. But it's still a beautiful story, isn't it? Because he rescues her. And there's something in the rescuing of the beauty that resonates in our hearts. We love it. We love it. A good story steals its power from the only true great story. All good stories still borrow their power from the gospel story. And so when we see a good story, just look, just look a little bit underneath. What you'll see is, is parts and pieces of the gospel story. It's in every good story. And why is that? I'll tell you why. God has placed in your soul a longing and a desire for the good story, the gospel. And when you see it, whether it's in Hollywood or another story, there's something in you that resonates with that story because it's partly the gospel. So the Christmas story has a fairy tale feel or a mythical feel, but it also has a truthful feel that has stood the test of time down through the centuries. Luke 2, 18 through 20, back in our text, it says, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, And then an interesting text, we're going to talk about it. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. People have been glorifying God and praising Him for the miracle of Christmas for over 2,000 years now. And before that, truthfully, the hope of Him to come. So this is what I want to say, and I want you to really be able to hear this as a believer or maybe even as someone that doesn't believe. This text, it's not a fairy tale. This text is not a myth. This text is truth for all people for all times. The truth is the answer for all that is wrong in this world. This truth will ultimately make all things right for those who trust in God's Son, the Anointed One, the Sent One. However, we know from Scripture that some will place faith in Jesus and many will not. Many will go on believing this is simply just a myth, perhaps like C.S. Lewis in his early days. How could miracles, you know, this is the one I get a lot. How could miracles really happen? How could Jesus really be God and coming into the world through a virgin? I can't see all those angels and heavenly beings, so how do I know it's true? Common objections. Matthew 7, 13 through 14 says this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide 
and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So now I return to C.S. Lewis. He often referred to this life as the shadow lands. What did he mean by that? The shadow lands. What he meant by that was this is not the real thing in, in some sense. But it's like shadows. I suppose the logic is sound if we believe the Bible is truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says it this way, very similar to saying it the way C.S. Lewis said it. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now in, in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known fully. And then in James 4.14, it says this, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is, your, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This life matters for all eternity. But in the grand scheme of eternity, this life is infinitely small. A shadow. So we live in shadow land, if you will. The Christmas story is God's attempt to help us, fallen sinful people, to see through the shadows and to see Him. We have spiritual blinders due to our sin. We wrongly value fleeting pleasures and replace them. Uh, we replace eternal joy with fleeting pleasures. So what does Mary treasure up in her heart? And I, and I close with this. What is it that Mary is treasuring up in her heart? I think it is the things that we should treasure up in our hearts. In contrast to shallow, super, superficial reaction of the many that heard the good news, much like the way we might would think about Christmas, Mary treasured up these things. She pondered them. She reflected deeply on the significance of the birth of God's Son and on what that birth would mean for her and Joseph as heavenly parents. In addition to the normal thoughts that go through the mind of any mother, Mary had many other things to think about. She considered God's redemptive purpose, how just as He had promised, He had sent a Savior to redeem His people. But that redemption would come at a fearful cost. Simeon would warn her even just later in chapter 2. He would tell her, And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Years later, Mary watched her son die on the cross, bearing God's wrath for, for our sin. So, Jesus is the myth that came true. The Christmas story is the ultimate story of battle, adventure, and rescue. All other stories borrow their power from the true story. God became man. 
I pray today that you see this. I pray that you hear. I pray that you know. And ultimately, I pray that you would trust him, that you would see him in the shadows. He is the true myth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the Christmas story. I thank you for those that have gone before us that help us understand things like this. And I pray for uh, our people that we would see that Christ is the true myth and that that changes everything. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.